welcome to Real Talk. Real Talk is about real conversations with real people regarding diversity in higher education. I am your co-host, Jamil Harp, a student activist. And I'm Casey Counselor, a professor in the Communication, Media, and Screen Studies Department at Southern Connecticut State University. All right, Jamil, let's go. Thank you, everyone, for coming to episode one. So my name is Jamil Harp. I am a senior communication major here at Southern. A lot of you may have known me from around campus. I've been involved in numerous organizations throughout my time at Southern. And now I am here hosting a podcast talking about everything diversity in higher education with one of my favorite professors, Casey Counselor. You know, uh, I just brought you up in class yesterday. Um, and all of the students they're posting in the chat, Jamil is the goat. Um, so you are well known, well known, my friend across campus. Um, so I'm Casey. I'm a faculty member in the Communication, Media, and Screen Studies Department, and I've been at Southern for uh, going on three years, six semesters. Um, so Jamil, you are my elder in that sense. First of all, I think before we get into anything, I think that we should tell folks how we met. Oh. Oh, how me and Casey met. So I met Casey his first year of teaching. Mm -hmm. I took his communications family stories course, which was a very good course. So if you're listening, please take the course if you have a chance to. (laughs) But it's basically a class where you doodle and you draw and you create stories. And my favorite aspect of communication is creating stories. So I just assumed I was going to love it. However, this was not the case. This was not the case. I took this course during a very busy semester. I was working, I had an internship, I was um, an RA in res life. So I had a lot of things going on. And so it was hard for me to invest into the course until Casey, you know, made sure I showed up on time to all Mm -hmm. class sessions. And I started to buy into the course. Yeah, but it did take a while. You know, I remember, um, so we were in that really small classroom we didn't quite have enough seats. So the person who came in last, the last two people would have to sit in the center of the circle, remember, at that access table. So Jamil would be coming in late. He would be looking, you know, wearing some nice fur coat, maybe some sunglasses, an iced coffee, strolling in. And then you'd have to go right to the center of the, of the class. But I could tell, I could tell, and actually the whole class could tell, that you had so many stories to tell. Um, you had a lot to offer and it was driving me nuts because, you know, maybe a month or a month and a half in, I'm like, man, Jamila's already missed two weeks of class. What's going on? Why? What's, what's missing here? And I feel like we must've had a, a sit down conversation that started to get you on board. We did. So we, um, had office hours together. I went to visit you in your office hours. Mm-hmm. And that's when I think we had our first halt to hurt conversation. Cause I can recall one question you asked me sitting there talking in retrospect to um maybe some of other courses but like how can i make black students feel more comfortable in my class which is a question no professor ever asked me before anything like that and that's when i understood that you were invested in your students and invested in me as a student and so boom here we are a few courses later (laughs) yeah and it's funny you I actually don't remember. You always say to, uh, you've said to me before, um, you asked me how I could support you as a black student. And I'm like, did I, I wouldn't have said it just like that. Cause I don't walk around just like asking people based on their identities. How can I support you? But that for you, there was some kind of disconnect 
Yes. And I didn't know necessarily what that was. And we very quickly got into talking about issues of social justice, diversity on campus. Um, and you actually taught me a lot about how the university functions. You know a lot about how the university functions. Yeah, because I believe I would have been maybe a junior or a sophomore at the time of this course, but I was always involved on a committee or a project, always trying to speak out about some type of issue I probably was upset about at the time and trying to get some traction over. And so I could I could assume that the conversation quickly jumped into, Jamil, what, what are you currently doing? And I'm mm -hmm. listing out all these things that are currently happening on campus. Right. And I, you know, I really thought you were a senior at the time because of, I mean, you know, swagger for sure, but also just the way that, that you seem to know on a really granular level, like talking about budgets, talking about how processes work at this institution, which is a complex one. Um, and so I, I do consider you a mentor in a lot of ways. I know you consider me a mentor as well, but um, yes, we're continuing these conversations that we have then had for the last three years. At a public forum. In a public a forum. Yeah, right. as a first generation student, um, you quickly learn that you need to learn the ins and outs of academia mm -hmm. in order to be successful. You need to understand budgets and financial aid and how you're going to get your money and how can you pay for school and what these courses you need to take, how these courses get there and all these things above in order to make a process and pathway for yourself. There's also another piece where, you know, you're an RA, you're not this semester, but you have been. No. Um, and I learned a lot about what student experience was like from you and learning about, you know, what happened during your overnight shifts at the desk as an RA. And then I would meet students in my later classes who they'd come to class and in their notebook, I'd see a little note from you. So I know that you're mentoring and supporting younger students along the way too. Yeah, I was an RA in Chase for a year, then um, maybe two years, actually, I'm lying. And then I did a semester in North Campus. So I have seen quite a few first, second year and beyond students come through our residence halls. And it was a great experience mentoring and, you know, spending, staying up all night with them and talking about their issues and mentoring and guiding them through this experience. And so many of them that have watched come in as a freshman are powerful student leaders today. So that's pretty cool to see that happen. And I have to say that I am glad that you're getting a lot more sleep this semester. Than I you have am. Mm -hmm. I'm not well, sure if you can tell, but I feel peaceful. <laughs> yes. You seem quite at peace. You know, this is a question that, that I haven't asked you in a while. So were you there in class um, that first semester uh, for my coming out speech? My I awkward... was not. Oh, you missed it. So have, does that I mean you have not. You've never heard my awkward coming out speech? I feel like, no, maybe I think I know tits and dabbles, but not the whole story itself. Okay. Well, let me, let me tell you how this goes. So um, in all of my classes, um, so four per semester, first day of class, um, among all the other things that you have to do in the first day of class, I come out to my students um, as transgender. And the way that I do that is in sort of a, an uh, awkward dad joke kind of way. I'm not <laughs> currently a parent, but it's in that, that genre. So I say, you know, another important thing to know about me is that I used to be a blonde chick and now I'm a dude. And of course that's like a gross oversimplification, but, um, and I share that with students because, and I tell them this, 
I'm a resource on campus um, for them, for people they know. Um, it's also not a secret. I'm really delighted to be trans. I love it. Um, and if you were to Google my name, you'd find out very quickly um, that that's part of who I am. But it's also really fundamentally how I see the world. Um, I have walked the world as a feminine, female-bodied person, and I now walk through the world um, as a man. And those two lenses really inform how I do everything. So yeah, that's how I come out. But I usually try to, you know, and I get students often have this sort of shocked look on their face. Um, but I try to do that with some humor and then bring it up throughout the semester as it's relevant in terms of talking about gender. And I want other, I want students to feel comfortable being themselves in the classroom too. So you missed it. I, I, I that's might what happens when you don't a. come to class. <laughs> I might have caught it in our capstone later on, mm -hmm. but if it was in capstone, I probably already, I already knew. So I don't think I was surprised. Um, and it's important, our identities, because it will shape how we have these conversations on this podcast and what lens we are coming to the table with. And having trans representation and faculty is extremely important for our mm -hmm. student demographic and understanding diversity, diversity in higher education and how that looks throughout. So you will hear about our identities, like I am a gay black man, I am Afro-Latino. So you will hear about these identities and how they shape my experiences or Casey's experiences and how we can bring this to the podcast and with our guests that will be coming up on later episodes. You know, another thing that we should mention about ourselves um, yeah. is that we both, well, two things. One, we both consider ourselves children of the 90s. This is and, true. This is true. I'm not mm -hmm. that old, by the way, y'all. I'm not that old. I'm only 22. <laughs> I just want that to be known. <laughs> That's fine. It's fine. We overlapped for a year in the 90s. You know, I was yeah. going off to college and you were arriving. Um, arriving. On planet Earth. Here you are. Um, but yes, we're both uh, children of the 90s, products of the 90s, those differently. And we're both artists. Um, and we yes. engage in social justice, diversity work in many ways through art. And I didn't become an artist, a cartoonist, until I was in my 30s because I met my teacher, Linda Berry. And then everything I learned from her, that's what I try to pass on to students. So you went from being this sort of hesitant student to all of a sudden being a uh, family historian. I give you a paintbrush and the next day you come in with 15 paintings, you know, so you really have taken up this um, new way of being in the world of being an artist, which is such a joy to me. Um, but you take up also some pretty heavy, serious stuff in your art too. Yeah, so you will hear us talk about student activism throughout the podcast. But one of the ways that I was able to express myself and express my activism is through my academics, whether it was from doing research projects or doing art with KC. And I used that course and later on at, um, at independent study to focus on creating art pieces that I felt was accurate to the time period around lynching, Jim Crow, minstrels, that whole world that happened not too long ago. And it was something that I was doing in contrast to my family history and researching my family through slavery. So as I was discovering these stories of my own family, I was depicting them in paint. And so um, I created a huge portfolio of all these pieces. And that's just one way you can show your activism 
in a way in which it's not walking around, you know, holding a blowhorn. Um, <laughs> it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. Yeah. And so let's talk about some of the things that we want to bring forward in this podcast. And, and let's just kind of go back and forth on this. For me, so one of the reasons uh, that I wanted to come teach at Southern was because it built itself as a, as a social justice university. It's, you know, there's not every state where, you know, trans people have healthcare rights, have a variety of legal rights, or institutions where I, I would even be considered as an applicant, to be perfectly honest. So when I'm thinking, you know, I see Southern, I see New Haven, I see social justice. Um, I think that's a, that's a space that would welcome diversity, that would welcome um, LGBT identities, that would, you know, there are a lot of assumptions that go with this term social justice. And one thing that I have noticed um, in the three years that I've been here is that um, there's not quite the, the culture that I would expect to see around open, honest, real, um, and difficult conversations also joyful conversations, but the real talk um, is something that, that I haven't been seeing as much of and that we, we need more of, more conversations. Yes. One of the reasons I joined the podcast is because I believe first we need to have students leading these conversations across campus and not within silos, but in a public forum, you need students having these conversations. And I think back to all the students before me who have put in all the effort work to get us to a space where we can put social justice in our mission statement. That was something that did not happen overnight. And so I kind of think of it as, you know, someone passing me the baton from the before I got here. Um, I think Southern is coming to a place where we are able now to have these conversations and trust th these conversations are not the end all be all but they are a part of the solution. This is this podcast is an example of our university saying, hey, we are dedicated to having social justice conversations on a regular basis. And this is just mm -hmm. one of the forums we're doing that in. And so I think if we want a space that feels equitable, that feels comfortable, that is loud, you know, because academia itself can either uphold white supremacy or it can, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, be against it. So if we are having these conversations, um, we can really dictate where our university is going and as a community, you know, saying to each other, what kind of community do we want to live in? How do we want it to feel mm -hmm. when we walk on campus? And I think as we have more of these conversations, we can discover where we are, where we need to go and how we're getting there. In terms of social justice, I also get a sense that some people, there are people who have been engaged in these conversations and actions on campus for many years. And then there are folks who um, are not part of these conversations, don't feel necessary, necessarily a part of the community. And so we wanna be inviting new people in to these conversations and to do exactly what you're talking about, to create the kind of university um, that we wanna be a part of, to make this uh, a community that's equitable, supportive, vibrant, interesting, dynamic, all of these things. Um, so it's fun that we get to, you know, extend our relationship, our conversations, open that up. Um, we've talked about considering this like a dinner party. We also both love to cook. Um, so we're co-hosting an audio uh, dinner party. We hope that you all engage with us. We want to talk about things that are that are 
on people's minds uh, right now on campus. Very much so. And I'm sure some of our viewers are probably wondering, like, why does diversity in higher education matter? Like, how does that impact me as a student or impact me as a faculty member? Casey, what do you, what do you, what would you say to that if someone was to ask you? Why does diversity matter? In higher ed, in higher I think ed. It, it might be a question. Well, you know, I mean, to my mind, it's everything. But that's that's not that's sort of a cop out answer, right? Um, I mean, exactly what you said earlier, that academia, there's a lot of power in terms of our, our language, who we consider experts, and our institutions of higher ed can perpetuate systems of white supremacy, of patriarchy, um, or, and they can help to dismantle them. And, you know, it's also as a teacher, I think it's, it's this incredible opportunity that we have it's where folks are getting together to study deeply, to think deeply and learn how to think critically about all of these issues. So it's a really precious opportunity, really. Um, and for us to not use that to towards liberation, towards getting the most people the most free, then we haven't gotten to where we need to go. That's what I would say. What would you say? I would related especially from a student perspective to your major you know if you are an education major and mm -hmm. yeah. it's a possibility you may be teaching in a red line district it's a possibility that you may be teaching in an underfunded underserved district where you have primarily primarily um, black and latino or marginalized students in your classroom and so um, having a diverse education will be critical to your understanding and approach as an educator as a communication major, me understanding diversity and citizenship and gender and sexuality will impact how I'm able to communicate to others, even those that don't look, feel, and believe the way I do, that don't come from the places I come from. So I think regardless of your major, you can kind of figure out how does diversity shape the work you are going to do post-undergrad and how you approach that work and how you accept others because you can be a part of the change and a part of progress and part of allowing others to feel dignified with a sense of humanity, mm -hmm. or you can be part of the issue. And so I think when we are looking at how we are teaching young folks, how we are teaching our community to be warriors of social justice and people that can advocate for their communities, advocate for themselves versus keeping up with the status quo. And then I think about you're talking about different majors. I mean, what's on my mind this morning is um, the sciences, particularly climate sciences with what's going on in Texas with the storms and all of these people. Um, I saw 7 million people under a boiling water advisory and just thinking about how climate change, just like the pandemic is exacerbating in really deep, painful ways that are existing social inequities, you know, so this is, um, I really also want to make sure that when we're having these conversations, often like folks who are in the humanities, who are studying human beings, uh, who are studying art, um, and sometimes less so the sciences, especially the hard sciences. But this is truly, it's a conversation for everybody. It's a conversation for folks who work in um, facilities and maintenance and financial aid, um, who are, you know, cutting keys for people 
who are teaching classes, of course. Um, but it's, it really is a conversation for all of us to have and to ask ourselves, like, why does this matter? Why does it, like, what does it mean to be at a social justice university? Where are we? How are we doing? And where are we falling short? Yes, environmental justice is extremely important. You see mm -hmm. those examples in Texas, but you see them across the country. Absolutely. You see them in Detroit with the water crisis. Oh, yeah, you yeah. see it in Cancer Valley throughout the Midwest. You see mm -hmm. these examples of environmental justice popping up everywhere. And it's important to also know that environmental justice is social justice because of who it impacts, yep. right? It's not typically impacting wealthy folks. Right. right. It's typically impacting poor people of color, especially those with disabilities. Mm -hmm. When it's an emergency, it's typically those that have disabilities that are left behind first. And so and for us to understand equity in our professions, we have to look at, you know, what are we doing? What are we contributing to? And how can we figure out freedom within those um, places? And mm -hmm. so these are all topics that we will be getting and touching on throughout the, the series of podcasts with our different guests and bringing these different professions on. So that would be a really wonderful thing um, to see. But I do have another question. Yes, yes. Performative activism mm -hmm. on Southern's campus. I hear a lot of folks, especially from outside the Southern bubble, say, you know, Southern says they're a social justice institution. They say this, they say this, but it's performative. Mm -hmm. What's your take on that? So that's that's a good question. Um, and I think about, so I was mentioning this when I said, you know, I wanted to come to this place that has a banner, basically, of social justice, um, or has a Black Lives Matter banner. Yep, you dry the, down and it says bridge. Black Lives Matter right on the yes. library. Fantastic. That is a place where I want to work. And that's the place where I want to be. Um, but I also think about places that I've, especially um, in the healthcare setting, places that have built themselves as LGBT friendly, as trans friendly. So then I go in with certain expectations for competence, for, for awareness about identities. Um, and then, you know, sometimes I've been really painfully confronted with the fact that that actually is not true. That's something they put on their website. That's something they put out there, but I actually, um, that doesn't hold true. Maybe one or two people there, but as a whole, um, they're not living up to that. And that I think sometimes can be more harmful than not having it in the first place. So in terms of Southern, I mean, one thing, this is on my mind on a daily basis. Um, one thing I would expect at a social justice institution would be to have a significant number of faculty of color. There period. we go. And that is, you know, I think that that is one of the most important things that we need to be talking about and why that matters, not just because of, you know, numbers, but because it matters who is teaching these classes. It matters that students have professors who look like them. It matters that students have professors that don't look like them. Um, but that, to, to, so that that's one, one place where I think a social justice institution, no question, um, should not have significant overrepresentation of white faculty members. Very much so. When I think about Southern being a performative, like being playing part in performative activism, some pieces of me is a little defensive, like, no, not my institution, but yes, my institution in lots of ways. Sure. I think one of the issues may be, you know, maybe lack of awareness of members of our community. I think a lot of people, especially are, if you're not doing this work, 
you don't know what's happening. You don't know about the changes that are being made on a daily basis, sure. the work, the committees, all those different pieces that play a part in the change. And so mm -hmm. I think a piece of it may be those lack of knowledge, but also like you were saying, lack of people of color and faculty. You know, I had to strategically find a class that is taught by a person of color because I refuse to graduate with a bachelor's without sitting in a classroom and looking at someone that looks like me. You know, I had to I've strategically heard, pick that. I've heard you say that many, many yeah. times and it's still like, it gives me goosebumps, like all the way up to my scalp to hear. Can you imagine if at least half of your professors were black professors every semester? What would, what would your experience be like? if that were the I case. Couldn't imagine. I'm mm. a first generation high school graduate, right? My parents didn't go to college, my siblings didn't, their parents didn't. So entering in a place of higher education and being the first person to pursue a degree in higher education, you know, pursuing a bachelor's. I'm from Bridgeport. Growing up, all my teachers were female. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. K through 12. I never had a male teacher. I only had mm -hmm. one once and he was a white male, mm -hmm. right? And so in my own little bubble, I am the only black man I know seeking a bachelor's degree. Then mm -hmm. I come to college, I take classes. I don't see black men with a degree in my classrooms and the departments maybe I was looking at or in my internships off campus, I don't see a black man with a degree. And so it almost feels like you're doing something impossible. And I can recall, I believe it was my junior year, um, the BSU alumni held a networking event. And it was full of black men that were lawyers, that were doctors, mm -hmm. that were Emmy winners. And I, it was the most emotional experience mm -hmm. for me because I have never entered a space where I said, wow, there's so many people that has done what I'm trying to do. I remember mm -hmm. when Jermaine Wright was hired on campus and how big of a feeling it was to meet a black man with degrees that is working in higher education, mm. how big of a deal it meant to a lot of us seeing yes. that. Yeah, and so one thing in terms of imagining and creating this, this um, social justice institution um, would be that students have that feeling from the moment that they step onto campus and it may be even before they come onto campus like what a difference that would make and i also think that you know when we're talking about diversity there's it's not just that we're integrating different kinds of people because it's the right thing to do it is it actually changes how the institution runs it changes how a classroom is run it changes um in because we're, we're not all coming from the same place. And I think that there's a lot of, you know, in terms of education and pedagogy, uh, like I can't think of anything that would be better. Something I hear often, and you know, you can jump in, you know, as you see fit, um, is, you know, why should we hire people of color just because they're people of color? Like, you mm -hmm. know, are they getting some type of extra benefits or this or that? Because why are we leaning in this direction? Like, why can't, why can't what it is just be enough for mm -hmm. those, for those of us? Um, and I heard something 
previous to this podcast, and I just think it's remarkable. You know, today it's snowed, it's snowing outside, it's been snowing for the last couple of weeks. You look outside, school is closed, and you go, but wait, why is school closed? My roads are great. My roads are paved. It was sanded and salted. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why school's closed. Without realizing that across town, people mm-hmm. roads are icy. People roads have not been shoveled yet, but your road has. And because you're looking out your narrow window, you can't see how it is across town. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in t- while we're having these conversations about diversity, we're going to be having the conversation about privilege in sure. general. Yeah. Um, especially from those that may be listening and may have certain reactions to certain things of like, why can't things stay the same? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of just wonder, like, because we're at a pre-WI, how does the conversation of privilege come into context of all of this? Right. Right. And I think about just the point you're you're making right now about snow. I mean, I feel so privileged to have this teaching job, you know, where I can uh, teach online. I still have a job. I still have income. I can pay my rent. Um, you know, of course, the pandemic causes many other problems. But in terms of the impact, it's not nearly the same as so, so, so many other people. Um, so I think that this point of, you know, folks and the same, I see the same thing with students. So the students who are privileged, who are able to, um, they have good internet at home, they have resources, they're doing well in school. They're struggling, certainly, but they are not, I mean, it just the gap between students we've seen in the pandemic, not just at Southern, of course, everywhere, um, but the gap in terms of access to education, quality of education, I mean, it's just, it's just getting wider, which means that it's more more important to deal with than ever in terms of equity. Very much so. I think it's, even in terms of equity, you know, I have heard the conversation of, you know, equality versus equity. Mm-hmm. I don't think people realize it's not that we all need the same thing. We all need different things. Right. You know, and that's okay. Giving us what we all need to make it to where we can be equal beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's these conversations is us taking a magnifying lens at Southern and saying, where are the barriers? Where are the barriers to education for students? Where are the barriers for faculty of color entering our university? Where are the barriers that is keeping us from being where we want to be? Identifying those, assessing those, and figuring out how to strategically attack and address that. That's Very right. So, Yeah, and I think, you know, in terms of um, performative activism, I, well, I also want to get it, okay, when we're having these conversations, one thing that, that I encounter a lot where I think that conversations in this podcast can really make a difference is people, and I guess I'm particularly talking about white people here, but not not exclusively, often have a sense, you know, like of themselves as a good person, you know? And mm-hmm. so they feel sort of like, I'm a good person. Um, I Maybe I, you know, I'm in relationships, loving relationships with people of color. I'm not yeah. a racist. Oh, I'm yes, my nice, boyfriend's a person of color. I'm oh, nice. Yes. yes. Right. Best friend's black, yes. And I think I really want to talk about that. Not perhaps that's not for today, but this idea that, you know, that that not being a racist is an identity as opposed to a set of practices that you take on. Um, and, and and what happens in those conversations when you do, you have a person of color who is expressing that they have been harmed, 
you have a queer person who's expressing that they've been harmed and then somebody says no i'm not a racist i'm not homophobic it or hangs up the phone it just stops the conversation and really i think you know i want us to move towards first looking at the impact of what happens when your response to something is to say i'm not racist or i'm not homophobic yeah period what does that do to the person who's expressing harm I think of the Angela Davis quote, you know, it's not enough to just not be racist. You have to be actively anti-racist. Mm -hmm. Just by not being racist isn't doing enough. And you have to be actively anti-racist in your rhetoric, in your life, with those around you. And if you are called out about something that may be racist, homophobic, transphobic, it's about accepting that, especially if it's coming from the communities in which that directly impacts them. You have to acknowledge that, accept that, and learn to do more. I mm -hmm. think we take on this barrier of, oh my God, if I accept the fact that I was racist this one time, that completely strips who I am. We think about racism as, you know, the most extremes of the extremes and not the daily microaggressions or those things that you see in the office or in everyday life. Mm -hmm. It's about understanding and educating yourself on communities in which you are not from, understanding what is okay and what's not okay, and then understanding that, you know, you can be better, that you have room to grow. We all have room to grow. And it's about being accountable for your actions. Mm -hmm. Because regardless of intention, you know, you are impacting other people and you need to be held accountable for that. And you should hold your own self accountable for that. And I hope those conversations are definitely happening across campus. Yeah, I mean, we might say that one part of a social justice institution would be that you know, we have a culture where it's okay to make mistakes, um, where you acknowledge that you make mistakes and that you don't just shut off, you know, if somebody is confronting you, that we really have a culture where it's okay to, to own up, to say, I mean, in fact, why don't I just do that right now? So um, and when you're a teacher, weird stuff, problematic stuff happens in the classroom all the time. And I think of myself as somebody who is pretty good at dealing with that stuff, pretty good at handling um, hot, problematic situations in the classroom. And yet, the other day, this was just a few weeks ago, first week of class, this is my two and a half hour online family stories class. I have a student who is, um, you know, everyone's going around introducing themselves. And there's a student who is clearly nervous and she's apologizing for her camera not working. And she uses the R word. It's like my camera's being, you know, yeah. and so in the moment, I'm like, oh no, all right, I got to deal with this. And at the same time, I'm managing this whole classroom. Uh, she like quickly popcorns it to the next person. We keep going and, and I'm thinking, you know, all right, as soon as we finish up, then I'm going to address that and then we're going to move into class. I forgot until I was brushing my teeth that night and I thought, oh no, like I really dropped the ball. I really dropped the ball. It didn't have to be a big deal, and I, but I just missed it. I missed it. So that didn't feel good at all. I didn't like the fact that I had left that sort of hanging in the classroom. And it also, it confronted me because I, I think of myself as someone who is a good teacher who can deal with this stuff well when it comes up. And yet here I didn't. So I wrote an email the next day, um, you know, it's, I write long emails, so I wrote kind of a long. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
whatever. I try to make them good to read, but you know, so, cause I wanted to, to, to point out very clearly, like, this is why we don't use this language. This is why it matters, but also to not alienate that student. Cause I was very concerned about calling out a student on the first day of class when I can't even see her and we're online. It's like a mess. So anyway, I got a bunch of emails back from students, including immediately from that student. So I thought, wow, I've been worried about like, how do I not make you feel bad? But meanwhile, what you actually needed me to do was communicate clearly about that. And then I got really fantastic emails from other students too, who were just, you know, they noticed it, they were glad that I addressed it. And then the next, this is what I considered that, that something really worked in doing that, addressing it later, repairing, that mistake was that all the students had their cameras on. They all showed up the next week and they all had their cameras on without my even asking, which is like a dream. And maybe, I don't know, I might regret sharing that story, but I, I want to really normalize talking about, you know, missteps. I think people are really nervous to be vulnerable and nervous to look bad, certainly nervous to look racist. Or maybe they're nervous about losing a job or... There's also that social status and those kind of things as well. Mm -hmm. But I think when we're having this these real conversations, this real talk, navigating the classroom, navigating it from a student perspective, from a faculty perspective, you need to understand how it actually looks in real life and the challenges that sure. may be thrown at you when you're having a good day or a bad day when you're ready to pick it up. And very quickly, I kind of want to talk about too because your last capstone mm -hmm. was full of student activism on the yeah. flip side yep. and how they shown what they were thinking and what they believed in through their academic work. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what you what you all did? Yeah, this was, um, you know, uh, a challenge. We had an asynchronous class. So we never um, met live at the same time. We had some meetings, but, but mostly the class was set up asynchronous online in a pandemic. Um, this is the fall 2020 semester. And um, you know, students take up a social justice project that has to do with communication, um, but the conditions, the fact that we don't have any um, access to studio equipment, cameras, mics, computers, all of that kind of stuff, but, but students decided like, all right, so we definitely need to do something related to Black Lives Matter, like period. That is the issue. This is what we need to, to go at. And, and how do we I really wanted to push them to physically put themselves out there to do that like deep reflective work, but also to step outside their comfort zone, you know, to go meet the artist who did the, the mural in New Haven. Um, so to reach out to people, to talk to Justin Farmer, uh, one of our alumni. Yes. Um, so to, to reach out and, and they produced somehow magically, I have, no idea technically how they did it. They made a 15 minute documentary that is, um, I mean, it just blew me away. I had high expectations and they far exceeded it. And they know themselves now to be activists in ways that they didn't before. And it's like like what you said, like not everybody is out there with a, a bullhorn, but they made a really powerful piece of art. They made connections and they, you know, they did more than just, you know, liking things on social media. So yeah, I mean, I think that that's an example of ways that we can bridge together this social justice and also our classroom Very work. Much. I, I think we have this, uh, especially students, I want to talk to students for a hot second, 
I think we think about student activism being on the front lines, yelling, screaming, and marching. Activism can show up in every platform you hold, whether that's you as a student in the classroom, whether that's you at work or in the positions you have. There's thousands of ways to mm -hmm. be an advocate, not just for yourself, but for those around you. I was in Casey's capstone previous to that, and we focused all on food insecurities at Southern's campus. That is another way of bringing this work into your academics. I have done projects studying trans dignity in the workplace in the communication aspect. Looking at that, that's the way of bringing it to your academics. I hear a lot of the INQ projects now are studying yeah. um, these topics as a part of one of their first projects here at Southern, which is amazing. And I think we really sleep on the fact that you can be an activist in your academics, but you can also be an activist as a part of your student roles. You know, when you're a <laughs> resident advisor, when you're an orientation ambassador, you can be an advocate for the students that are coming in. You can be talking and listening and seeing what students need in real time because our administration and our, you know, our VPs, they're not currently taking their undergrad classes during a pandemic. They're not living in a dorm either. They're not living in <laughs> Barnum Hall in 2021. They're not. You are. Yep. And so only you know what that experience is like at this moment. And so finding whatever platform you can find, whether it's through your student leadership job, through your internship, through your academics, through committees, joining committees, talking to a friend, emailing, there's so many ways for you to get involved and to become an activist in your um, as a part of this community. And I think in order for something to build and institutionalize that, you know, we gotta put we gotta put some funding to the side for mm -hmm. folks to get paid for this work. That's right. We gotta put some scholarships aside so people can um, afford to come to Southern to keep doing this work. That's right. We have to have larger acknowledgments for those that are doing this tireless work. And so I think Southern has a couple steps to take for us to institutionalize student activism and social justice work as a whole, especially if you want to be inclusive of our entire community and not just a handful of us who have the privilege of being able to do this work, quite frankly. I couldn't say it any better myself. And so as we're coming to the end here, we, we committed to keeping this shorter than a 50 minute class per episode. Very much. Um, so uh, there's a question that has been on my mind, especially in the last year. Um, that I would love to ask all of our guests. I have a, a working answer and I, I wanna see what you have to say. So in your most radical imagining, so we can say, look, we talked about a series of things that already that aren't perhaps working well, but let's vision radically into the future. What does Southern look like? What does it feel like? You know, we have to imagine these things before we can create them or as we create them as part of, you know, abolition, part of a justice work. So what is this, what are we working towards in your wildest dreams? What does it look like? That's a beautiful question for the viewers. It's a hard I have some question. Initial, it's a hard question. I have a handful of initial thoughts, you know, SCSU being a good steward of the New Haven community, mm -hmm. right? Us being accessible to the public, us being accessible for those coming in, you know, eliminating barriers to education. But even someone that is 
completely marginalized in every aspect of their identity, race, social economics, gender, religion, sexuality, disability, citizenship, who are the most marginalized on that totem pole, can feel safe, at home, loved, and belonged in our community, mm -hmm. who can walk the campus and they walk by people that know their names. Mm. You know, they can walk from the residence quad all the way to Morrill Hall and everyone they walk by know their name, is happy to see them and smiles at them, mm -hmm. I think is a beautiful place to be. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I wanna go there, I wanna be there. And I've been thinking, um, my teacher uh, and friend, Thea Monier, has a vision of what education in school can look like that I just, you know, I think about this on a daily basis, that what if school looked like teachers saying to students, to each student, you know, I can't wait to find out what your unique gifts are and to, mm. to nourish you into your fullest expression of self. And like, wow, what if school were like that? You know, we can look and say, we, we don't want this, this over-policed metal detectors, but what do we want? You know, and what's that gonna look like and feel like? So let's, let's keep building on that, on that question. Let's ask people, let's ask our community here um, as we keep having these conversations. Yes. And with that being said, we want this to be more than just a two-person conversation. That's correct. Me and Casey plus guest. <laughs> so we do have an Instagram now. We do have an Instagram. Follow us on Instagram at Real Talk at SCSU. That again is at Real Talk at SCSU. Please follow us there on Instagram. We are posting updates. Check on that page on Tuesdays. Sometimes we may have Q&As posted. We're going to have different questions and different stickers and ways for the community to interact and react to these podcasts. We want to know about episodes you want to hear, topics you want to hear, guests. If you have a faculty member or a specific person from the community that you say needs to be on this podcast that has real talk, who has something <laughs> real to say about what's going on in the world, please let us know. DM us on Instagram. Give us their name so we can reach out and try to bring them on and bring make them a part of this conversation. If you listening want to be a part of this conversation, let us know and maybe mm -hmm. we can work something out. We are extremely happy to create a conversation amongst the entire community. All right, Jamil, always a pleasure. It has always been a pleasure. So we will see you next time with a full topic and we're chat. Thank <laughs> you for right. listening to Real Talk. <laughs>